In the first half of uh, Genesis 47, we read about Joseph bringing his family uh, before uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And I argued this was a type of Christ as this kind of uh, mediator bringing God's people to God. Uh, uh, Joseph being this Christ figure. Um, and then Jacob also witnesses to Pharaoh about the difficulties of following Yahweh. But Pharaoh submits to being blessed by him. And I think this indicates uh, perhaps some kind of conversion with Pharaoh. Um, and then lastly, we see Joseph settle his family in Goshen. In the second half of this chapter, what we just read, the famine uh, hits Egypt. It hits Egypt and Canaan hard. And um, then we see Joseph save the people again by purchasing them and everything they own. And then we see his family prosper in Goshen. And then we see that Jacob makes this request to Joseph. Uh, I think the fundamental thing here, the, the, the takeaway, is Joseph as Lord. And Joseph as a type of Christ who has purchased us by his bread, by his body. I think that that is the fundamental thing going on here. If that's the one thing you take away from the sermon, I'll be happy. Uh, so we're told that the famine was severe in Egypt. There's no bread. And uh, Egypt was the place that was providing bread for the rest of the world. But now it has become desolate. And um, uh, it says that, the, the, that Egypt and Canaan languished. This, langui this language of languished is like fainted. They like fainted. Anybody who's fasted for an extended period of time knows that kind of fainting feeling. That weakness in your knees. The land is fainting because they have no food. <clears throat> John Calvin makes a note. He says, let this be a warning to prosperous nations that they learn to trust in the Lord rather than their own riches because the Lord can take away these material possessions in a moment. He says, the, the fertile source of all food for the world has now become desolate. Let this be a warning to all prosperous nations to learn to rely on God for the source of their prosperity rather than their own riches and wealth because it can turn to dust in a moment if God wills it to. And so this, of course, can serve uh, as a warning to America. I think most Christians know that America's on the decline. I think everybody knows America's on the decline. So I actually think we can apply the inverse of this. Everybody is expecting America to go in the toilet, which probably will happen. But just as God can take nations that are impoverished and turn them into prosperous uh, uh, and fertile nations, um, or, or just as God can take prosperous nations and make them barren, he can take barren nations and make them prosperous. I think we're all thinking things are going to get really bad, and maybe it will. But God can change that in a moment. He, we might see an economic boom next year. We have no idea. It's all in God's hands. Um, and so we see that God is, is, is sovereign over all these things. Okay, so uh, Joseph um, gives the Egyptians grain for their money, uh, and then grain for their livestock, and then, and then grain uh, bread for their land and their bodies. That's kind of the, the overall uh, 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 th kind of three-tiered panel that we see happening here. 
It says that Joseph gathered up all the money. That word gathered is gleaned. He gleaned up the money kind of at the end of the harvest when you glean up all of the, uh, or people are allowed to glean, like Ruth was gleaning in the fields. It, it means to just scrape all of it up. So, so Joseph gets everything. He brings in all of the money. And a couple things to note here. Jo the first thing, Joseph doesn't just give them bread. He sells it to them. He could have just given it to them. He could have turned Egypt into a welfare state. But that's not what he does. He makes them buy the bread. Um, and this, this whole episode, it, there's, people are divided. Um, some people view Joseph as a tyrant here, an evil, evil man, evil guy taking advantage of the poor and enslaving all of them. I don't think that that's what's going on. If you look at the history of, of commentary on this, uh, most commentators throughout history commend Joseph for his wisdom here. Ambrose does it. Uh, uh, John Calvin, Matthew Henry, they all commend him for selling the bread rather than just giving it out, uh, uh, giving out free uh, handouts. Um, let's see here. Matthew Henry says this. Um, yeah, the, the main complaint that we see, particularly in the Reformed tradition, is that the Egyptians should have known. They were warned that there was a coming famine, and they didn't prepare. Joseph prepared. They could have prepared privately, but they didn't, so Joseph justly sells it to them. Uh, Matthew Henry says, If all the Egyptians had done for themselves in the seven years of plenty, as Joseph did for Pharaoh, they had not been now in these straits. But they regarded not the warning they had of the years of famine, concluding that tomorrow shall be as this day, next year as this, and much more abundant. <laughs> so I think that there's uh, something uh, worth going on there. Um, also, there's, this is something we see in the law. We'll get into this later, but just as a, as a note real quick here. In the law, poor people who are sold into slavery well, well, poor people aren't given handouts. Poor people are sold, are, they sell themselves into slavery. So they work for their, their food. And then their family members can buy them out of that slavery to be their slaves. <laughs> so you always see that the poor and the destitute are working them, them, their, themselves uh, out of their debt or for their food. The second thing we see, Joseph takes the money and he stores it up for Pharaoh. He brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Joseph is a faithful steward with public trust. He gives it to uh, Pharaoh. Uh, and compare this to almost any politician now. You look, at, you look at the founding of this nation, some of the men who fought for this nation and founded it died in debtor's prison. They, they came out of this more poor than they went into it. And everybody who goes into public office now, not everybody, but a lot of people get really wealthy. And this is not a good thing. Um, and they often do it by, think about the Joe Biden crime family. They're making all of these deals and they're enriching themselves by virtue of their public office. Joseph is not doing this. Um, one commentator says, those in public trust, if they raise great estates, must take heed that it be not at the expense of a good conscience, which is much more valuable. All right, so the money fails. The money fails, 
and the Egyptians can't buy, the, buy bread anymore, but they're still asking Joseph for bread. And Joseph says, I'll give you bread for your livestock. Cattle, sheep, donkeys, everything. And then he fed him that year with that exchange. And it's worth noting that things are really, they're, they're continuing to be bad. They're having to give more and more things. And the people, um, it's not an uprising. We don't see a French Revolution. We don't see um, uh, the proletariat throwing over uh, the, the capitalist. <laughs> we, we don't see this violent uprising. They're willing to sell uh, for food. So that's, that's interesting. Um, also, when they, they say, give us bread, that, that verb there, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an emphatic, give me. And it's, a, it's similar to when Rachel says to Jacob, give me children or I die. And they're coming to Joseph. It's a similar thing. He's experiencing something similar as his father. Give me bread or we die. <clears throat> okay. Uh, a year passes. The people are then willing uh, to sell their land and their bodies to Joseph so that they can live. Why should we perish in your sight? Um, and that's what he does. He buys their land and he buys their bodies. He enslaves them, uh, except for the priests, and we'll get into that. Uh, in verse 21, we read, And as for the people, uh, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. And this is... This is based off the Masoretic text. So the Masoretic text is the Hebrew text that we have several hundred years after Christ. That's where those manuscripts come from. But they're considered older in origin. Um, and then we have the Septuagint, uh, which I actually, I'm not sure what the earliest manuscripts are of the, of the Septuagint. But the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Oftentimes, the New Testament writers are quoting the Septuagint. And I, I've found that often the Septuagint renderings are actually better than the Masoretic. And this is, you know, it's not that important. But here, the Masoretic says he moves them into the cities from one end to the other. It's kind of a weird saying. He's moving, he buys everybody and moves them into the cities. Maybe. Um, but in, in, the, in some, of the, uh, some of our modern translations, like ESV, they, they won't go with the Masoretic. They'll go with the Septuagint, which is, as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. As far as the context of the story, that makes more sense to me. He's, he's made them all servants or slaves. Okay. Um, also, just a point about Joseph, Joseph as tyrant. I'm, I'm attempting to take this down through the typology, but also through the immediate context of what we read. What do the people say? The people respond, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. Does this sound like misery? Does this sound like ingratitude? It, it, the reason we have trouble with this is because we have the history of chattel slavery in, in America. That's not what this is. These people are willingly entering into this. And they're grateful. Let us find favor in your sight. You've saved us. <clears throat> okay. So Joseph as this Christ figure. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Joseph enslaves everybody. 
or he welcomes them as slaves. There's a few things to notice here. The first one is that a Hebrew slave enslaves all the Egypts, uh, all the Egyptians. Joseph, who was once a Hebrew slave, he's a Hebrew ruler, he enslaves all the Egyptians. Later, we will have an Egyptian ruler enslave all the Hebrews. So it's an interesting uh, inverse happening here. Uh, the second one is that this is similar to what, again, Joseph is having, there's like echoes of what, is, what, is, what happened to his father. How might this be similar to something else that happened to his father? Pretty famous episode with Jacob. Anyone? When Jacob sells Esau, uh, gives him soup for his birthright. Esau's about ready to die. I need that food or I'm going to die. Okay, give me your birthright. <laughs> so we see the righteous gaining dominion. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're gaining dominion over people. Christ gaining dominion over people if we want to take it to its apex. The third thing, uh, this is a precursor to what Yahweh God is going to do with Israel. Yahweh is going to own all of Israel, all the Hebrews. He's going to own their land. He's going to own their cattle. It all belongs to Yahweh. You read the law, he, he, he's constantly saying this. Like when he talks about you can enslave foreigners, <laughs> but, but when you enslave a brother, you have to free him after a certain amount of time because they belong to me. Um, the land belongs to God. So in some ways, God is the, the landlord and he owns all of it. And, and this, is similar to what, uh, this is similar to what Joseph is doing. Um, just a few examples. In Leviticus, yeah, Leviticus 25, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, says Yahweh, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Um, God is a king who parcels out the land to his people. Um, it, it, and, and it's similar with the, with the way that debtors get out of debt. Um, yeah, debtors are, they sell themselves into slavery. Um, he can mortgage his land. Uh, Leviticus 25, he can, um, he can sell himself, he can sell his dependents, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. But that, so we see that this is a way of people getting out of uh, trouble, getting out of some kind of impoverishment. Um, Gordon Wenham says this, he says, the Old Testament law itself does not envisage the destitute simply being bailed out by the more well-to-do. Rather, if possible, members of a family should help their destitute relatives, just as Joseph did, by buying their land and employing them as slaves. And he references Leviticus 25. If we take the general equity of this, the principles involved, it is not a welfare state. And we've seen what, what fake charity does it destroys people destroys cities look at detroit look look at california that is not what the when the bible talks about taking care of the poor it is not that so that's that is something that i think we can we can glean from this um and then it's just as far as slavery goes uh in the year of jubilee everyone is eventually freed um in the old testament law 
or all the Hebrews, if Hebrews are enslaved by their brothers, they're freed in the, the year of Jubilee. Foreign slaves are permanent slaves. And there's a lot that we could draw from this. <laughs> but uh, Hebrew slaves are freed in the year of Jubilee. Um, and so when, the gen when, a, when an Egyptian pharaoh eventually takes over after this uh, episode, he doesn't free, um, he doesn't free the Hebrews. So that's interesting because he's a Gentile who doesn't free the Hebrews. And if we take Pharaoh as like a, a, a type of Satan and he's, he, he is, uh, he owns the Hebrews and then God comes and he ransoms them out of Egypt. So there's, there's, there's more strong typology going on there. But the fourth and the essential takeaway, which I've mentioned already a few times, is the Christological typology of Jesus purchasing us and him being Lord and us being his slaves. This language is blunted in our new translations because it usually says servants or bond servant. But the word is doulos, which is slave. <laughs> Uh, the first um, in, my, in my Greek class with uh, Dr. John Schwant, great, great professor, uh, I read a short story of a, of a slave. And, so, and I can't remember what his name was, but, uh, but I remember the Greek word, doulos. And that is what uh, we see in the New Testament. Um, we see, so this is not only anticipating what the Lord is going to have with Israel, it's anticipating what Christ is going to have over the world that he is going to own the earth, that all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to him, and that we will be purchased by him and belong to him. St. Paul, in his opening words uh, to his letter to the Romans, he says this, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. That's his opening, that's his opening statement. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, sometimes the... Um, the uh, clerical collar will be described as um, uh, indicating uh, being a slave to, to Christ. St. <laughs> Paul says the, the Corinthians, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. So he's talking about slaves are free in Christ. And he says, likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. He's playing with this paradox. He says, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. In Christ, we are slaves. In Christ, we are free. <clears throat> uh, to the Corinthians elsewhere, St. Paul says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, there's a statement of fact. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In Acts, St. Paul says, he purchased us with his own blood. That language of purchasing is, I think, sometimes blunted because it'll say redeemed. And I, I don't know, in, in our minds, at least in my mind, it just becomes this theological category that only applies to the atonement. But if we think about it in, in monetary terms, it goes back to this uh, slave metaphor that Christ redeems us with his blood. He purchases us with his blood. We belong to him. 
Joseph purchased the Egyptians with bread. Christ purchases us with his body. Uh, St. Peter says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. And then Jesus himself says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, a ransom is is a payment to acquire something. So the Egyptians here are, they are held in, by the, they're, they're slaves already. There's, death is their, and, and all in their, in their pagan gods, if they hadn't converted, they're slaves in that sense. And then uh, Joseph comes and he purchases them out of that, out of the impending death that's about to come on them. And that's, that's kind of the dichotomy. We're either a slave to sin and Satan or a slave to righteousness and to Christ. That is, those are the options. And only, only in Christ are we truly free. The, the slavery in, in Satan is, is not freedom at all. It, it is a, an illusion of freedom. And I, I want to end with, with, not the sermon, <laughs> but this section. Uh, John MacArthur, John MacArthur takes a beating by, uh, by a lot of people. People, he's very polarizing. Um, but I, he, I think that he's done really great work on this topic, um, showing he he wrote a book. I think it's just called Slave, and it really uh, points this out. I'll quote this for you from that book. He says, the language of slavery does more than merely picture the gospel. In fact, it is the central, it is central to the message of salvation. That is because the slavery metaphor points to the reality of Christ's lordship. And the lordship of Christ is essential to the biblical gospel. The gospel message is not simply a plan of salvation. It is a call to embrace the person of salvation. And he is both Savior and Lord. The two cannot be separated. So he's just saying this highlights Christ as Lord, which of course is one of the things that is under attack or that's one of the the errors or heresies, I guess you could say, of of our day is that people love Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord. And so this slavery metaphor or this slavery reality is uh, helpful in highlighting what the gospel really is. Um, Oh, and another thing, when they come to Joseph, they say there's nothing left but our bodies. And that word bodies sometimes, I mean, it's just, it's just bodies, but, but it can mean corpses like in battle when there's bodies piling up. And so in some ways, we kind of see them coming to Joseph and they're about to die. It's like we are corpses. Uh, They're dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And they need Joseph to save them. They need this Christ figure to save them. We see kind of a little bit of that as well. Okay. Now, what does Joseph do? Uh, In verse 19, they ask for seed. And in verse 23, Joseph um, gives them seeds to plant. And I think that this is, this is just so amazingly 
Christ kingdom gospel. It's exploding with gospel imagery. He, he, he purchases them and then he says, here's seed, go and sell, go and be fruitful with the seed. And in the New Testament, we have parables that the seed is the word of God. And who is the word of God? It's Jesus. So he, he says, go and plant the word. And, you know, there's certain parables the seed is thrown by the wayside and the birds come, which is Satan takes it away or it's, it's, it's thrown in the thorny bushes and the cares of the world choke it out. Um, you know, but the, the point is he gives them a task. He gives them a mission. Some a great commission possibly is anticipated here. Go and sow, go and go and scatter the seed B, which is interesting. It's an old Testament, new Testament kind of fulfillment in the, in the old Testament biological seed is perpetuated by natural families, covenant families, same thing in the new Testament, but we see an expanded or we see a higher emphasis on the spiritual seed being sown and, and the fruitfulness of that. Jesus compares the kingdom to a seed. Uh, it's like a mustard seed, which is really small and it grows. Paul, St. Paul says the seed of Abraham is Christ. So it's, that's all over the place. All right. Um, then he taxes them 20%. This has actually already happened in, in Genesis. We see this in Genesis 41 uh, when they're um, preparing for the, um, the land uh, or they're preparing for the, the years of famine. So th this is, <laughs> this is, this is uh, the, the food that he's selling back to them. He had already taxed it from them <laughs> and he's selling it back to them. Um, and it was at 20%. Now, I, there's kind of a general thought that the state, if they tax above 10%, it's um, unlawful or it's going beyond what even God requires. Um, and I think that that's true. I don't think the state should tax more than that. I think that's a good principle that we can derive from Scripture. But so is Joseph being sinful here by taxing 20%. I don't think so. And I think that the way that we can explain that is even in Israel, um, we, there, is, there is a church and a state. And we see that sometimes the kings will tax and then, the, 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 then you have the tithe that goes to the priest. And I think the same thing is happening here. You have 10% that's used for state affairs and then you have 10% that's used where else? For the priest. They had priests who have land and then they had allotments and rations that they gave them. So they're, keep, they're, they're keeping their church going as well. Whether those were converted priests or still pagan priests, uh, we don't know. But uh, I think that that's probably the, the explanation there. Or it's a possibility. Um, and then, yeah, that's interesting. They, he, he doesn't, the, this appears to be something that the Egyptians already had, something uh, they were looking out for the priest. They, they um, they had a 501c3 clause in some sense for the priests. Um, yeah, Joseph doesn't buy their land. Um, they, they, they receive a stipend from Pharaoh. So uh, these pagans, or at least they've inherited it from their pagan past, they recognize the need for divine worship and its close association with the state. <laughs> and so they provided for them. And we, yeah, we still see this today. With the with uh, most churches are tax exempt, and this is a good thing. Um, 
I know that a lot of kind of fundamentalist type Christians think that 501c3 automatically means an unfaithful church. Um, perhaps that there's incentives to be unfaithful, but I, I don't think that that, I don't think that the two necessarily have to go together. I think it's good that the state provides these things. Uh, I can't remember one commentator, uh, it was either Calvin or Henry, said, uh, if Pharaoh was so solicitous about his priest, what a sacrilege it is for Christian rulers to neglect the ministry of holy things. <laughs> and then we're told that the law was in place till the time of, of the author, to the present day, um, which we would take as Moses. Some people speculate that it's Joseph himself, um, but it is probably Moses. And then we're told that Joseph's family, Israel, they have possessions, they grow, they multiply exceedingly. And it's not a very long, uh, it's, not, it's not long, they don't dwell on it, but it's a stark contrast from what we just read of the Egyptians. So we already see that the Hebrews in Goshen are doing pretty well, while the Egyptians aren't in the sense of multiplying and, you know, when the, when the, when the plagues come, they're protected from the, the plagues that God sends. There's light in Goshen when everywhere else is dark. And so we see this, and it's kind of a denouement to the rest of the story, kind of this final, you know, everybody's at the Shire and happy uh, moment where they're being fruitful and multiplying. We have the first part of Genesis, God says, be fruitful and multiply. They're here in Goshen. Jacob is back with Joseph. His family is being fruitful and multiplying. And it sets the stage for Exodus. That's what we see once we start getting into the life of Moses. The Hebrews are just being incredible fruit, incredibly fruitful while they're in slavery in a foreign land. And what this shows, <laughs> and this is very relevant to our time and, and things that we've seen, God provides for his people during times of economic collapse. Amen. We don't have to be biting our fingernails or filled with so much fear uh, that, that, we, that we act on things, uh, that we act on that, where we act on our fear, that we act on our unbelief. God takes care of his people. It is all throughout all throughout. One commentator says, Jacob and his family, those strangers, were plentifully fed on free costs while the Egyptians were dying for want. <laughs> Isaiah says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. The psalmist says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Was it Elijah or Elisha who was fed by the ravens when there was the drought in Israel? They brought him bread. The psalmist speaking of the upright they shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine. They shall be satisfied. Amen. It looks like America's going to, I mean, everybody, everybody's saying that famine is coming, that economic collapse is coming. Maybe it will. Maybe it will. And I'm not worried. <laughs> not worried about it. 
It may be hard, and it may be the chastisement from the Lord because, our, uh, because the church is unfaithful. But I do believe what the word says, and that is that the upright are, are provided for. Amen. Okay. Um, so we, 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 it goes from Egyptian and, uh, Egypt and Canaan, kind of zooming in on Joseph's family. They're being fruitful and multiplying. These are patriarchal promises kind of coming to fruition. Joseph has blessed Egypt. He's been a blessing to the nations. They're having many children. And then the land, land promise comes back in here between this conversation between Jacob and Joseph. So these patriarchal promises are kind of being addressed here in, in the end of this in Joseph's story. Jacob lived 17 years in Egypt with Joseph. Anybody know why that's significant or interesting? Joseph lived 17 years with Jacob before he was sold into slavery. So Jacob nourishes Joseph as a young man and now for 17 years and now Joseph is providing for Jacob as an old man. And then Jacob wants him to make this vow to bury his body with their fathers in Canaan. Uh, we kind of see Abraham doing something similar with, with uh, his servant. To, uh, he, he has the servant make a vow to him, put his hand under his thigh to go find a wife for Isaac as Abraham's kind of getting towards the end of his life. So you see when the patriarchs kind of come to the end of their lives, they have these oaths that are being taken by servants, um, certain missions that are given to them. He, he says, I want my bones to be buried in the land of Canaan. And he goes, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you're going to do this. A hand under the thigh um, is, is it's, it's, either, it's a reference to uh, the family jewels and the hand being close to that has lots of significance. You're indicating trust. It's dangerous to put your hand close to there. You're indicating trust to the person. You're indicating the familial kinship. You're indicating, um, uh, you're indicating that this, I guess jumping ahead here, this is the organ by which the Messiah is going to come. <laughs> That's another aspect of it. Um, so that's one of the, one of the reasons why, why that uh, is, is there. Also, kind of just a practical aspect, there's going to be a temptation to stay in Egypt. And perhaps Jacob anticipates this with his, with his sons. They're going to be tempted to stay here because life's pretty good here, at least right now. Um, and so I need to remind them what God has said. And that is that we're strangers here. Our home is in Canaan. That's, that's the land that God uh, promised to us. So may, telling Joseph to swear to him to bring his bones to Canaan is like this, even after he dies, it's just going to be this echo in their ears. We got we to gotta take dad's bones back to Canaan because that's the land that God promised us. So it's, uh, that's, that's perhaps one of the reasons why he has him do this. Um, also, it would have, it, it, it risks, uh, it, it's interesting, the gospel's always offensive. 
uh, it risks offending the Egyptians. Like, look what the Egyptians have done, the hospitality they've shown to the Hebrews. And Jacob is saying, I don't want my bones buried here. You know, like oh, they, they could be perceived, oh, we're not good enough for you to be buried here. You, you know, so you kind of risk offending your host there. So that's that's also uh, worth noting. Um, and then and then, you know, perhaps making Joseph take the oath. He understands that it could be an offensive thing. So he wants to make sure um, that he does that. Um, now, again, uh, putting the hand under the thigh and the, the association with the private member. This is something that the early fathers thought about. That's what they thought that it was connected to Christ. Uh, Gregory the Great, he says, he orders him to put his hand under his thigh, since through that member would descend the flesh of him who was Abraham's son, according to the flesh, and his Lord owing to his divinity. Um, so, you know, from, from, from this generative member is going to come the Christ. Um, and then also it, it, it seems strange to us that this is so much care is put into where my bones are buried. I think maybe as Protestants, we probably don't have, uh, I mean, it's, it's, we have a healthy regard, but maybe not as healthy of a regard for these kinds of things. And then I think probably Eastern and Roman Catholics probably have, um, a bordering on, or if not just rank superstitious view of these things. Um, but they rightly point out that these are important. And Augustine in City of God says that he much care was put into where he was buried and his bones because he believed in the resurrection. It's a, it's a statement of the resurrection. I believe that my body's going to be resurrected uh, again. Augustine says uh, that the patriarchs show that God's providence extends even to the bodies of the dead and that such pious offices are pleasing to him, meaning the burial in Canaan, as cherishing faith in the resurrection. So when we bury our dead, uh, we have this to this day. When we have a Christian funeral, what is read? Generally what's read out of any prayer book? Something about the resurrection, because we believe in the resurrection of the body. Okay, and then the last thing here. Actually, two more things, and then we're done. The very last statement. Again, this is a Masoretic Septuagint discrepancy. Verse 31. Then he said, swear to me, and he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Okay? That... He bowed himself on the head of the bed is the Masoretic text. It's the Hebrew. But in the Greek, it says he leaned on his staff and worshipped. Now, where have you heard that before? That Israel leaned on his staff and worshipped. It's in Hebrews. Paul quotes the Septuagint, and he's quoting this. So that's an interesting thing. It's another kind of point for the Septuagint. He's leaning on his staff and worshiping. Either way works. He's bowing towards his bed. Uh, perhaps it's, it's uh, maybe another fulfillment of Joseph's dream of his, of his father's and brother's bowing. Um, but I've always liked, in the New Testament, 
him leaning on his staff and worshiping because it reminds us of the wound and the blessing that Jacob received that he has to lean because he had his, he had his hip ripped out for a second. <laughs> and he walks with a limp because God loves him. <laughs> right? I love that. That's, that's tough. Like I, I almost get a little teary eyed every time I read, he leaned on his staff and he worshiped God. Oh man, that's tough. Whew. And then finally, Joseph as, the, as a type of Christ, Jacob sees this type resurrected. He thought Joseph was dead. Now he's back. He's back in communion with him, and he can die peacefully. And we have the same thing now. Our Lord has been resurrected. We see him, and we can all, we are all now able to die in peace. We are able to go to our graves uh, knowing that we will be raised again uh, in glory. Let's pray. Just as Joseph became master and Lord over everything that belonged to the Egyptians, their money, their livestock, their land, and their bodies, so too Jesus is master and Lord over everything in your life, from your iPhone to your credit card to your hands and your eyes. It all belongs to him, and so you are not your own. You were bought at a price which means you are to honor God with your iPhone. You are to honor God with your credit card, with your hands, with your eyes. Everything is his and ought to bring him glory. The peace of God, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and the love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to be among you and remain with you always.